Isaiah chapter 6. It says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. With two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongues from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And then I said, Here I am, send me. This is God's word. So Father, we ask this morning, humbly but audaciously, would you show us your glory? Would you reveal yourself to us through your word? Let your face be all that we see. Let your glory be all that we seek. We ask now that you would sanctify us in the truth of the word, that you would edify your church and you would do it to the glory of your name. Whether the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart be acceptable, pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. We ask all these things in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Everyone said, Amen. Amen. You can go ahead and have a seat. And uh, as you find your seats this morning, I'm going to encourage you to turn with me in your Bible uh, to Isaiah uh, chapter 6. That's where we're going to spend our time together this morning. Well, hey there, Cross family. Man, I've missed you guys uh, over the last few weeks. If you are uh, new with us, if you're a guest with us, my name's Taylor and I serve here at Cross uh, as lead pastor. My family and I have had the privilege of uh, just enjoying a short sabbatical through the month of July. So we've been gone uh, in a way for the last few weeks. And uh, we just want to say from our family to you, man, thank you so much for your prayer and for your encouragement and your support. It was just a really sweet season of rest and refreshments uh, and renewal with our family and in the Lord. I'll share a little bit more about that later. But in particular, would you just join me right away this morning, uh, thanking Alex, thanking Cole, thanking Dustin, thanking Dave, uh, just for sharing the word with us over the last few weeks. Would you join me in thanking them? Yeah, that was an invitation uh, to do that. And uh, thank you to our staff and to our elder team. Uh, just so grateful for each one of those uh, brothers, knowing that they served you well over the last few weeks. And uh, this morning, we are going to start a four-week message series from Isaiah chapter 6 called I Saw the Lord. Uh, it was my original plan that we would uh, come to sort of do a one-off message in my time back with you, but as we're going to see even this morning, there is just way too much glory. There's way too much God in this one chapter of the Bible to try and condense it into one sermon. So we're going to spend uh, four weeks here. So this morning we'll look primarily at Isaiah 6 uh, verses 1 through 3. 
couple weeks ago, I had the opportunity to take our middle son, Nolan, uh, to the U.S. Space and Rocket Center in Huntsville, Alabama. Who's made that trek to Rocket City before and knows what I'm talking about? So um, as a space camp nerd, as a kid, um, that was my experience. I was thrilled to know that one of my boys uh, shared in this nerddom with me. And so uh, our middle son, Nolan, has always been infatuated with jets and with rockets and with flight and space flight. And so we had planned this trip for a long time. And uh, as we're driving in Huntsville, coming in on 565, you, you kind of come around a corner and there's a clearing in the trees and you see a couple miles away, towering over the whole community is a 363 foot replica of the Saturn V rocket that took astronauts uh, to the moon. It was constructed 1999 to commemorate the 30 year anniversary of the landing on the moon. And, and so Nolan sees it, he's going nuts. And we drove right by it. We were going there the next morning. And as we drive by, he says, dad, is that the real Saturn V rocket? And I had to break his heart a little bit. I was like, well, buddy, it's not the real, real one. You know, the real ones went to space. I said, there is a real one there, but it's inside an exhibit hall and it's laid out in all of its different stages and you can walk under it, but that one's just a replica. And almost a little bit disappointed, he was like, oh. He goes, so that one's not going to space? I was like, I, I don't believe that one's going to space anytime soon, no. And so uh, the next day we get to the Space and Rocket Center and you have to check in there uh, through the museum. And so Nolan was not interested at all in the museum. We, uh, we, we check in, we get our tickets. And as we're walking in, he says, I want to go back outside and see the rocket. So uh, we go outside, and in my mind, I'm thinking he wants to see the towering 363-foot model that, that, that stands right there. But as we, we go outside, he runs right by it towards the exhibit hall. And I said, buddy, where are you going? I said, don't, don't you want to see the rocket? He goes, I'll see it later. I want to go see the real thing. And so he had it in his heart. He said, I don't want to see some replica. I don't want to see some model. I don't want to see something fake. Uh, inside this exhibit hall is one of the remaining three authentic uh, Saturn V rockets. And so you, they've got it broken up into all the stages and you can walk through and see the rocket boosters. And uh, you, you just kind of walk underneath it throughout the full length of the exhibit hall. And Nolan was not interested in any sort of replica. Nolan was like, if I made this trip, I want to come here and I want to see the real thing. He wasn't interested in anything that was fake. And when we, we opened up Isaiah chapter 6 and we uh, look at where God's people, the, the people of Judah, are in the 8th century of BC. The nation of Israel had divided into the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And Judah had enjoyed a really long season of national and economic prosperity under the leadership of King Uzziah. And this really spanned several decades. But while the nation had grown strong, their worship had grown cold. They enjoyed economic prosperity, they enjoyed national prosperity, they were growing, they were thriving, and a lot like the rocket that Nolan and I passed through, their religion and their practice of their faith, it gave off an appearance of strength, it gave off an appearance of power, but when you took a closer look, what you found was a domesticated faith that lacked any sort of real sincerity or devotion. Their worship of the Lord had grown cold, and because of this, the Lord had grown weary of them. You could turn back in your Bible just a few pages to Isaiah chapter 1, and verses 10 through 18 of Isaiah chapter 1, really the whole chapter speaks to this, but especially verses 10 through 18, shows us the posture of the Lord towards the people during this season. It says, hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. He asks, what to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? 
Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They've become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. And then in spite of their sin, the invitation in verse 18, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. And so this is the context, that this is what sets up really the ministry of Isaiah. The people's worship had grown so stale, it had grown so stagnant, so superficial, so cold, it was so burdensome to the Lord that he told them to stop. Stop bringing offerings to me, stop gathering, stop praying. All of this is a burden for me to bear. He says, my soul hates these things, and he actually tells them to stop their religious practice. But it's during this time of superficial, dead, dry, religious practice that a man named Isaiah receives a vision. He receives a vision of the Lord, and it's a vision that he cannot unsee. It's a vision that leaves him completely undone. And church, this is important for us, and we're going to spend four weeks here, because much like God's people in Isaiah 6, you and I are prone to going through the religious motions in such a way that while we say we believe in God, he is no more real to us than a replica model of a rocket at a museum. He's no more real to us than our favorite character in a movie or an interesting character who's in a book. And as we'll see today through the example of the people of Judah, even our obsessive infatuation with surrounding cultural threats and current events and the cares of this world, this can blind us to the prophetic vision of his holiness, which is the necessary fuel of worship. Drew Dick has a really great book called Yawning at Tigers, where he's talked about our modern day tendency to trivialize the holiness of God. And in the book, he reflects a vision vision of God's holiness is essential to our worship. It rescues our worship from superficiality and makes it passionate and profound. If we had a vision of God like Isaiah did, I don't think we'd be asking him for good parking spots. Isaiah saw something. He saw someone that he could not unsee. He saw something that left him as a man completely undone, and it filled him with a relentless zeal for the glory of God that fueled every minute and moment of his life. So this morning, uh, we're, we're going to begin. Again, this is going to be a four-part series, and uh, we're going to take Isaiah chapter 6, and we're going to look at it in four distinct parts over the next four weeks. So today, uh, we're going to see a picture of God's holiness. That's Isaiah's first interaction with the Lord is a vision of his holiness in verses 1 through 3. Next week, we'll see how our inter interaction with the holiness of God reveals the depth of our sinfulness. Then the next week we'll see how God, uh, even though we have sinned, does not eviscerate us in his wrath, but in his mercy, he purifies us of our sin and then qualifies what we'll see in the fourth week, us for the mission that he's given us to pursue his glory and to make his glory known to the ends of the earth. And as we do this over the next four weeks, uh, this passage just beautifully unfolds the gospel in four distinct movements of God, uh, man, Christ, and response. 
So today we're seeing who is God. Next week we will see who is man. Uh, in the third week we will see who is Christ and what he's done for us. And then the fourth week we'll see our response. So today, as we focus on who is God and we focus on his holiness, we're going to see that the gateway to authentic worship, and by virtue of that, the antidote to superficial worship, is an all-consuming vision of the holiness of God. I don't know about you, church, but like Isaiah, I want to see something I can't unsee. I want to see something. I want to see someone that leaves me undone so that we are not as a body of believers constantly being tossed around and consumed by the cares of the world, but to be a people who have been consumed with a vision of the holiness of God. So Isaiah chapter six, let's read together here at first, just uh, the first line of verse one. It says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. Now let's pause there for just a second because there's some important context we need to know about who King Uzziah was and what was happening in the nation uh, during the time that Isaiah received this vision. So uh, Uzziah had inherited the throne at age 16 and his throne lasted about 52 years and it was a really impressive reign. I mean a really impressive reign. The nation expanded geographically. He rebuilt the military. Uh, he secured defense systems. He reinforced the infrastructure of the nation. Second Chronicles 26 tells us that Uzziah was a king who did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And so under his reign, under his rule, the nation experienced great national and economic prosperity. But uh, as the nation grew strong, Uzziah grew proud. As the nation grew strong, he grew proud. And as a result, uh, he did what only the priests were supposed to do, which was to go into the place of worship and he offered an unauthorized sacrifice before the Lord. So uh, when he's confronted about his sin, instead of responding in repentance, he responds in arrogance. And because of this, the Lord strikes him with leprosy. And for the next 10 years, he co-reigns with his son, Jotham, before his death. So in spite of uh, being told that he is a great leader who did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, in spite of leading the nation to tremendous growth and national and economic prosperity, Uzziah's critical error, church, pay attention, was that he trivialized the holiness of God. And this is a whole other sermon for a whole other day, but it's a pretty universal, universally clear principle throughout God's word that as goes a leader, so goes the nation. And the people followed him into this trivializing of God's holiness. The people followed him into this sort of going through the motions, not taking it seriously, worship before a holy God. And as a result, God's judgment had come upon him. Uzziah's death marked a significant national shift in a historical marker. It was a major transition in the nation's history. So much like you and I would think, and we'll reflect on in the next few weeks, it's crazy to think, man, 20 years since September 11, 2001, we say that date, and immediately for most of us in this room who were alive, there's a number of things that come to mind. And this was that kind of date in the nation of Israel, in Judah and Israel's history. It was the year that King Uzziah died. It was a major year of major transition. And so it's at this time, in this context, of a trivialization of worship and a trivialization of God's holiness that Isaiah sees the Lord. And this is what he sees. It says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. So the first glimpse that we get of God through Isaiah's vision is that the Lord is seated in transcendent majesty. 
The Lord is seated in transcendent majesty. The temple for God's people was an image of heaven descending to earth. But for Isaiah in this moment, it was almost as if earth had been caught up and ascended into heaven. An earthly king had passed, but the vision that he gets is of a heavenly king who remains firmly fixed on his throne. And so the first glimpse that God or that Isaiah gets of the Lord is not just who he is, but where he is. He is transcendent. He is above. He is up. I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted. You know, as uh, we did eventually go look in the, at the replica model of the Saturn V rocket after we'd seen the real thing, Nolan came outside. You can kind of run underneath it because it's elevated about 20 feet off the ground and you can look up inside the boosters and so he was just running circles around out there and then he'd run to the outside and as far back as his little neck and head would allow, he threw his head up trying to see the top of it and he said, Dad, it's just bigger than everything. And that was his perception. And, and that's Isaiah's feeling as he comes in the presence of the Lord. He's just bigger. He's just above everything. He just transcends it all. He's, he's what you can see above everything else. Burkhoff has said of the holiness of God, it's first of all that divine perfection by which he is absolutely distinct from all of his creatures and is exalted above them in infinite majesty transcends all time and space and reality. And around him, above him, we're told were the seraphim. Now, uh, this is a fun word in your Bible because this is one of those words, it's not been translated, it's been transliterated. So much like the word hallelujah, which is still the, the purest form and expression of that word, the best we can tell about this word seraphim is that it means something to the effect of burning ones or blazing ones. And so you've got, it's, it's just difficult to describe. You've got these like thermonuclear celestial beings just, just fiery blazing. They've got six wings. With two of them, they're covering their faces. With two, they cover their feet. With two, they fly. It's just this overwhelming picture. We're not told in this particular vision uh, how many that Isaiah saw, but when you go to John's vision, Revelation chapter five, it says there were myriads upon myriads and thousands upon thousands, aka millions of them. And so it's, it's almost like the 4th of July and a volcanic eruption and the northern lights and, and, and every other explosive thing you can think of, like they've collided in one single moment around the throne of God. So, so this first glimpse that Isaiah gets, like it's not one that's really soothing him and making him comfortable. This is freaking him out. This is terrifying. We're going to see this next week that his first response is not, oh, that's nice. His first response is like, kill me or get me out of here. It's, it's not a comfortable experience, but we see the Lord exalted in this incredible, indescribable majesty. We know of the seraphim that they also have hands. Verse five says that they grabbed a coal from the altar to purify Isaiah's lips. But then we also see in verse three that they have voices. So these completely awesome, completely terrifying, extremely difficult to describe beings. I mean, just they're letting out day and night these cannon blasts of praise. And what's the song that they're singing? Holy Holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The first glimpse that Isaiah gets of the Lord is that he is seated in transcendent majesty. And we see second that the Lord is exalted as absolutely holy. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Holiness is a word that speaks to God's total, absolute moral perfection or righteousness. Holy comes from the Hebrew word meaning to cut or to be separated. So God is completely, totally, utterly, absolutely, run out of adjectives, holy. 
I mean, just completely set apart, completely cut apart, completely distinct, completely uh, different, and completely other from us. And we're not just told here that God is holy. We are told that he's holy, holy, holy. And this is a really important detail. There's no other point in scripture that there is an adjective that's used three times to describe who God is. You know, if you just asked the average everyday person walking down the street, who is God? They would probably respond and say, God is love. That's usually what comes to us most naturally. But, but listen, as you read through scripture, we are never told that God is love, love, love. We are never told that God is mercy, mercy, mercy. We are never told that God is grace, grace, grace. We are told that he is holy, holy, holy. In the Hebrew culture, the number three signifies perfection. So with holy already meaning that God is totally cut apart, totally set apart, totally distinct, totally separate, totally and utterly perfect by saying holy, 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 it's to say that he is perfectly perfect. And the emphasis here, if you really dig into this, it's not addition, it's multiplication. It's not holy plus holy plus holy. It's holy times holy times holy times holy. It's just this ever increasing glory and holiness that emanates from his being. And this is the first glimpse, this is the first picture that Isaiah sees as he comes into the presence of the Lord. Jerry Bridges has said that holiness is the perfection of all God's other attributes. His power is holy power. His mercy is holy mercy. His wisdom is holy wisdom. It is his holiness more than any other attribute that makes him worthy of our praise. Why did the people of Judah fall into cold, impersonal, dull Im uh, worship and praise that grieve the heart of God? God because they lost sight of his holiness. The only appropriate response to the holiness of God is worship. And that's what had been lost in the land. And so this chorus day and night for all of eternity, this is what's echoing around the throne. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. I'm not going to read it just for the sake of time, but Revelation points to this as well. John receives this vision millennia later. And this is the picture that he sees is, is the song of God's holiness being exalted and it is being belted out across the throne. And then, and then the elders surrounded the throne singing out about the glory of God. And church, listen, you know why it is we can sing the song like we sang this morning about how he's only a holy God and, and how in just a little bit, you know, we'll sing holy, holy, holy. It's just this beautiful sound that's going to echo through this. You know why it is you, you just kind of get captured in those moments and think, man, that was beautiful. That was gorgeous. I could stay in this for just a little while because that's what you and I are going to be doing day and night for all of eternity around the throne, singing that he is holy, 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 that his glory has been made known to the ends of the earth, that all things have been created by him and for him and exist through him or being sustained and upheld by him. It's all pointing church to the glory of God. And this is the picture that Isaiah receives. The Lord is exalted as absolutely holy. Third, John shows us that the Lord has displayed the fullness of his glory. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. This can also translate uh, really as, as a statement of desire and intent. May the earth be filled with his glory. Where uh, holiness really speaks of who God is, glory speaks more to his manifest presence. So we see through the Old Testament that the glory of God is revealed to the people in the cloud. We see that the glory of the Lord fills the tabernacle and the temple. And it's, it's the manifest presence of God. It's the weightiness of God. It's, 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 it's tangibly present in such a way that it can be seen and observed. And so this is what is being sung out. And you, you'll see oftentimes through the Psalms, the psalmist expressing this desire and the prophets looking forward to a day when the whole earth would be filled with the fullness of the glory of God. 
And so this is the song that's being sung, that, that Isaiah is singing. This is what's uh, the moment that he's being caught up in. Psalm 19 says that creation itself, that even the skies above, they declare the glory of God. It all speaks to his handiwork. And theologically, we call this general revelation. And what general revelation teaches us is that God has commuted his glory to all of creation, generally through the intricate brilliance of creation itself. This is, uh, the Apostle Paul speaks to this in Romans chapter 1, verse 20. He says of the Lord, his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so they are without excuse. Paul's argument is that creation is so intricately designed, it's so delicately made that no one can look at it and not at least wonder if there's a God who put it all into motion. This is general revelation. God has generally revealed himself to everyone through the fullness of creation. But then John starts out his letter, John 1.14, telling us that the fullness of the glory of God has been revealed through the person and work of Jesus Christ. This is one of our favorite Christmas passages, right? We'll look at another one here in just a moment. It says, and the word became flesh. The word, capital W, the logos, God incarnate, became flesh and dwelt among us. And what's John say? And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Church, you and I have not just received general revelation. We have received special revelation. This vision of Jesus Christ has been preserved in God's word. So you and I, more than any other people on the planet, we will not stand before the Lord with the excuse that we didn't know. He has generally revealed himself in all of creation. He has specifically revealed himself through his son, Jesus Christ, and the vision of Christ has been faithfully preserved for us in his word. You know, um, a, a few weeks ago, when we first started sabbatical, Emily and I had the opportunity to go out to a, a pastor's and wives retreat at Beaver Creek, Colorado. And um, I'd been to Colorado once when I was like middle school and, and kind of into the Rocky Mountains and stuff. But I think I was probably playing my Game Boy or something while we were making that drive because I just, just, you know, totally didn't take it serious and don't remember a whole lot of it. But, um, you know, we landed in Denver and had about a two and a half hour drive to Beaver Creek, which during that time, I mean, you, you drive through the Rockies, you drive past uh, Breckenridge and Vail. And, you know, we're leaving Denver. We didn't feel like there was a whole lot special about that. But then, man, we, we start getting into the hills and then those hills get a little bit bigger and then those hills become cliffs and those cliffs become peaks. And I, I just want to tell you, that's an extremely hazardous two and a half hour drive, not because of the twists and turns of the road, but because people like me aren't looking at the road. Like we're driving, we got our phones out. And I mean, at every single turn, what are we saying? Like, oh my goodness. I mean, there's still snow guys. Like I'm losing my mind still seeing snow in the middle of July and, and we're just trying to take it all in. I think I maybe looked at the road for all of 30 seconds in two and a half hours because we were just so taken in. And so as we were uh, driving back a few days later and heading back to the airport, uh, Emily and I were talking, I said, you know, I said, I can understand. I really can understand when people have disagreements with the Bible, when they have objections to the Bible. I can understand when, when people have a hard time with faith because of the hypocritical example of uh, unfaithful followers of Christ has said, here's what I cannot understand is how any human being can look at all of this and say, aren't you glad this is just the product of random chance? Aren't you glad that this has no real meaning or any sort of eternal existence or, or significance? Aren't you glad that one day it's all just going to disappear and utter oblivion and has no ultimate meaning whatsoever? I just think like what a hopeless existence. And it's moments like that is where we're driving through Breckenridge and Vale and Beaver Creek the earth is literally singing the song of his glory. 
It's, it's the manifest glory of God. The whole earth is full of his glory. Uh, over my sabbatical, I got to read about a 600-page biography on uh, the uh, airborne invasions during uh, Norm the Normandy landing in World War II. And the guys who were uh, coming to the edge of the aircraft, they talk about the sight that they saw that night, how uh, the, the firepower from the ground was so thick. I mean, between the mortar shells and the tracer rounds from the bullet, they said uh, the fire was so thick you could almost walk on it. And that's what scripture means by saying that the earth is full of the glory of God. I mean, it's, you can feel it. It's weighty and it's thick and it's tangible. And God has generally revealed himself in his creation and he specifically revealed himself in Christ. God's glory has been made known. And it's this vision of God's holiness. It's this vision of God's glory that leaves Isaiah completely undone. He has seen something that he cannot see. And as we're gonna see over the next few weeks, this fuels him with a relentless zeal to make the glory of God known to the ends of the earth. And this is, church, a vision that we desperately need today. We desperately need this vision today because we're going to look at an example here in just a second, but much like the people of Judah, you know, we, we look at our world and there are so many threats that surround us, some of them real, some of them imagined, but there's so many threats that surround us that we, we look at, especially over the last 18 months. Man, it's, it's so easy to become with, man, COVID, consumed with COVID politics and school politics and actual politics and church politics, and we just fixate on it. We just become fixated and obsessed with every uh, perceived ideological, political, spiritual, geographical threat that exists in our world. But this is the example we're going to see here in just a moment, is that people who have caught a vision and glimpsed a vision of the holiness and the glory of God, they do not live lives that are obsessively consumed with even the greatest threats of this world, even if they're real. We are not to be people who are marked by fear. We are not to be people whose lives are consumed with everything that might cause us harm. And so this is the context that we see among the people of Judah uh, in Isaiah chapter 7. So after Uzziah dies, we see that Ahaz ascends to the throne. And as Ahaz ascends to the throne, we learn from 2 Chronicles 28, Scripture says he was a wicked king who did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And when he is on the throne, uh, there starts to become rumors that uh, Syria and Ephraim are conspiring together to attack the people of Judah. And the people of Judah, God's people there, they become overwhelmed by this. I mean, they just, are, just become obsessively fixated on, on what's happening between the Syrians and the Ephraimites. And listen, this was not an imagined threat. This was a real threat. The Lord actually reveals this to him and said, hey, they're, they're in cahoots together right now, and they're planning to come against you. And, and this is what Isaiah chapter 7, verse 2, it says, When the people heard this, the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. I mean, they were shook. That they were, I mean, just rocked to their core about what could happen. Again, this was not an imaginary threat. This was a real threat. And so the Lord speaks to Isaiah and he says, listen, I'm with you. I'm going to guard you. I'm going to protect you. He says, tell Ahaz not to be afraid. Tell him to be firm in faith. And then he actually tells Isaiah, he says, listen, I'll give Ahaz a sign if it will help his faith. Tell him to ask me for a sign. I'll show you that I'm for you and not against you. But Ahaz refuses the sign. He's too proud. He's too arrogant. He refuses the sign. And so the Lord says, okay, fine. You don't want a sign. I'm going to give you, any, give you a sign anyway. And the one he gives us is in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. What's it say, Christmas fans? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. You shall call his name Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. 
That wasn't just a promise for Judah, church. That's a promise for us. You're going to treat me like I'm unreal. You're going to have impersonal, dull, cold faith. I'm going to come to you myself. Listen, nobody is more passionate about the glory of God than he is. I'm going to make myself known to you. And more than this, go read chapter seven and watch what happens. And he says, and because of this, he said, because, because you will not walk in the fear of me, here's what's going to happen. Not only am I going to give you the sign you did not want, these Syrians that you're so concerned about, that you're obsessed over, they're going to take you over. So, so pay attention to what happens here. The Syrians presented a geographical threat. They presented a political threat. They presented ideological threat. Most importantly, they presented a spiritual threat and the people were consumed by this. I mean, just, just their total existence was wrapped up and wringing their hands on what's gonna happen. We gotta watch out. We gotta fight against this. We gotta stand against this. We gotta be spoken against this. The Lord says, fine, you're so consumed by them. I'm gonna let you be conquered by them. It was self-fulfilling prophecy that they spoke it into existence. They were so afraid of what could happen and obsessed so badly over what could happen that it happened. And so we ask, well, well, then how do people who have seen the Lord react differently than people who have not seen the Lord? Let's look really quickly here at Isaiah chapter eight, because this is what the Lord speaks to Isaiah in the middle of all of this. Isaiah eight verses 11 through 15 says, for the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people saying, do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy. Now time out. This wasn't like tinfoil hat conspiracy. This was a real threat. But even in spite of that, the Lord says, you are not going to be obsessively fixated like this, the way the rest of the people are. Do not call conspiracy all this people calls conspiracy and do not fear what they fear nor be in dread, but the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor is holy. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and many shall stumble upon it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. Church, pay attention. This was not an imaginary threat. This was a real threat that existed. But instead of trusting the Lord, instead of reverencing the name of the Lord, instead of walking in the fear of the Lord, their entire lives were obsessively consumed with the things that could happen. And these were real concerns. These were real legitimate concerns, but their lives became dominated by them. And listen, I'm not sure there's a more important word for the American church in the year of our Lord 2021 than this. Some of us, uh, this, is, this is the story of our life. I mean, everything over the last 18 months, it, it is just dominating us right now. It dominates our thoughts. It dominates our conversation. It dominates our social media feed. There's nothing about us that indicates we're a people who are most serious about reverencing the name of the Lord and walking in the fear of his name because we've caught a vision of his holiness. And, and listen, it's, it's not me sitting here saying there's nothing to be concerned about. And, and I would agree with you. Like there's plenty in our world today to be concerned about politically, ideologically, spiritually. I mean, just go across the Lord. It is one thing to be concerned. It's a totally different thing to be consumed. And many of us are just consumed by it to the extent, man, Satan's just taken you out of the game. No threat whatsoever. Like we, we posture, our faith looks big and it looks strong. It looks like that impressive 363 foot rocket, but it's got no fuel, no power, absolutely no threat whatsoever. He has decommissioned you and he has you thinking that you're doing what you're supposed to be doing when the reality is he has just completely robbed you of any vision of the Lord. What we need desperately more than anything else is a vision of the Lord. 
Again, I know some of you hear this this morning and because it always goes this way. I've been doing this for a minute now. Like you're just sitting there thinking, well, this guy just thinks we just need to bury our heads in the sand and pretend like there's no problems. No, you're, you're missing the point. Church, this is not a call for you to bury your head in the sand. It's a call for you to lift up your eyes and see the Lord. How many of us saying this growing up? We know this is true. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and what happens? What happens to the things of earth? They grow what? Strangely dim. Don't you love that? In the light of his glory and grace. John Piper had a, a podcast um, a while back and, and he spoke to the concern of followers of Jesus who always seem to be consumed with the things on the margin. Again, not, not that things aren't important, but just seem to be consumed by the things on the margins to the extent that we miss the most important things that are revealed to us uh, in God's word. And so this is a few paragraphs long. This was a little too long to put into your uh, notes this morning, um, but it is going to be on the screen here. And so just bear with me here for, for a couple moments as we reread through this, because I think this speaks so clearly uh, to what uh, this passage is getting at today. He says, what I've seen over the years is that there's a certain kind of personality or more seriously, we could call it a certain kind of spiritual condition that seems unable to be profoundly engaged with, unable to be deeply moved by, unable to rejoice in the great central glorious realities of the Christian faith. They're always on the margins. It's as though their minds and hearts are like magnets that are constantly attracting little iron fragments from the edges instead of the big massive thing at the center. And ultimately the things of greatest importance get neglected. The glory, the wonder, the beauty of the Christian faith is passed over and they're always fascinated with marginal things that are not preeminent. Here's an example. I recall preaching a sermon one time pouring out my heart concerning Christ and his worth and his beauty and his brightness and his worth, his humble perfections as a man, his agonizing death, his triumphant resurrection, his victory over Satan and hell and death, his reign in heaven, just giving everything I had to show the magnificent, glorious, weighty, central reality of Jesus Christ in the way of salvation. And a man took my hand at the door afterward and with great excitement said, have you seen this article? It was an article that put another puzzle piece in place for his little conspiratorial fascination. Now that response wasn't new for him, it was typical. It didn't surprise me, but it was just sad. He could sit under the passionate biblical preaching of the greatest realities in the universe and be absolutely unfazed. Unfazed by that because of his controlling interest in marginal speculations. That's amazing. What's needed is an awakening of the heart to the superior worth and greatness and beauty of the most important things in scripture. Church, it's one thing to have a concern. There's plenty of concerns in our world today. There's concerns politically, there's concerns ideologically, there's concerns religiously, spiritually in our nation, and, and not all these threats are imagined. A lot of them are very real. It's one thing to be concerned about things. It's an entirely different thing to be consumed by them. And people who have seen the Lord, people who have caught a glimpse of his beauty and his majesty and his glory and his holiness, we do not live lives that are marked by being consumed, obsessively consumed with every threat that this world throws our way. Yeah, you know, I just ask us to consider this morning as we see Isaiah's vision, why is it we, in this cultural moment, could we consider this morning that the reason we seem to have this infinite attention span for the latest controversy, the, the latest culture war, the latest ideological and political divide, 
Why is it we can just bury ourselves into screens and to Netflix for, for four or five hours a day, but can't seem to give four or five undistracted minutes to being in God's word, spending time in prayer and worship? And we could say a lot of things, well, just you know, time and schedule and just the busyness of life. Could we consider this morning that maybe the reason we have infinite time for all of these things and marginal time for the Lord is because we're just plain bored with Jesus. So we've just gone chasing after other things. We've found a way to be consumed by everything under the sun except for him. And so we asked this morning, but what what do we do with all this? What do we do with with a vision of a God who is majestic and who is holy and who is glorious? I I think the response is really simple for us this morning. It's modeled for us by Isaiah. Our response today is humble, reverent devotion and worship. Isaiah did not see the Lord because he was sitting in front of a screen waiting for a talking head telling him the next thing he needs to be outraged about. It was through his quiet, faithful, humble devotion, he just came to the temple to pray, just came to the temple to, the, to worship. And the Lord, through this very simple, ordinary means, he revealed himself. And I just want to give you a very simple, practical takeaway uh, this, this week. Is I want to challenge us as a church family to, over the next four weeks, let's memorize Isaiah chapter 6. Let's memorize this vision that Isaiah got. And I want to encourage you at some point in time this week is, is to go to a quiet place where, where you can be alone by yourself and you can shut a door. You might have to get up a little early to do this or stay up a little bit later to do this. Whenever you can find quiet, just to open your Bible to Isaiah 6, maybe read it 5, 10, 15, 20 times. Just, just meditate on the text. Close your eyes. Ask the Lord to help you see him with the eyes of your heart. And just posture yourself before him in humble, reverent worship. And be so humble and audacious to pray the same thing Moses prayed, which is, Lord, show me your glory. Show me something I can't unsee. Show me something that leaves me undone. We can live concerned about what's happening, but we can't be consumed. The only thing we should be consumed by is a holy God who is seated on the throne, high and exalted, above everything else, transcending all else, the train of his robe filming the temple, the sound of voices filling the room with shouts of praise, shaking the foundations. Church, we need this vision because I fear what's happened for so many of us, man, the Lord's just taking, Satan's just taking you right out of the game. He's got you so fixated on everything else that's not the Lord. He's just taken you right out of the game. And, and I'm going to share more on this in the next few weeks. But, you know, there's one major takeaway that I, I was able to, to, to take from the Lord that he gave to me during my time away of the last few weeks. It's very, very simple as, regard, as it pertains to our church family. I got plenty of concerns just like you do. I mean, there's some major real threats that exist in our world today. And followers of Jesus Christ, we better be ready to buckle down. There's some stuff coming our way that we have never seen before, that no generation of Christians in our nation's history has ever seen before, that we, and especially our children, are going to have to be firm and strong and have steel in our spines to be able and to endure as we perpetuate the gospel to the next generation. I promise you I have those concerns too. I'm not asking us to bury our heads in the sand, but I do want us to lift up our heads and see the Lord. And to be able to start seeing all of these things in light of his glory and his brilliance and his beauty and his holiness. When the enemy sees Cross Community Church, that this is what the Lord laid on my heart. I want him to see a threat. I want him to see me. I want him to see you. I want him to see us. And I want him to see a threat. I refuse 
As long as there's breath in my lungs and the Lord has ordained that I'm, I'm to stand in this place on a weekly basis and shepherd this people with his word, I refuse to let us be a people, to be a community that is marked by paranoia and fear and outrage over everything that's happened in this world. When the enemy sees us, church, I want the gates of hell to rattle and shake. I want demons to tremble as we lift up our voices and we join in with the eternal chorus, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. May the whole earth be full of his glory. That's our aim. That's our ambition. It is to that end that we will commit our lives. And so listen, I, I want to leave off on this, this note this morning. We're going to press into this more in a couple weeks. We have a very transient community. The last 18 months have resulted in a lot of transition in, in our church family, in our nation. I, I think I owe this to you at least every couple of years. So I'm just lay it out for you like this this morning. If what really consumes you, if what really drives you, if you're just being honest, if what really consumes you and drives you is what's happening in, in the culture wars, is what's happening in the political world, what really drives you is, is being consumed with just secondary differences, superficial preferences within the church. I'll just be honest with you. You may have a difficult time here. If you're being honest, if that's what you want me to do is, is come up and trumpet the, the, the talking points of the talking heads with a couple of Bible verses every week, like I'm, I'm not your guy. I'm just being honest with you. But if you are serious about seeking the Lord, if you are serious about dealing with sin, serious about repentance, serious about knowing fully the mercy and the grace of God that's been poured out to us through Jesus Christ, serious about raising up your hand saying, yes, Lord, here I am, send me, come what may. If that's you, then let's lock arms together and do damage for the kingdom. Church, I want us to be a threat. I want us to be a threat. And that starts with a vision of God. So Father, we ask, Lord, will you grant us those eyes to see, grant us ears to hear, and hearts to truly know that we would not be those who are consumed by the threats of this world, but are consumed with your holiness. And give us a vision of you this morning.